Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome back Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. In our conversation, Marianne addresses exactly why she's running as a Democrat against a Democratic incumbent. We talk about rapid sweeping change versus incrementalism. We discuss populism and how Republicans have managed to become the preferred party of the working class. We probe many of our most salient social issues, including abortion, climate, and gun rights. And Marianne outlines her vision for a healthier society and an appropriate defense budget. In recent months, Marianne has really captured a lot of attention among Gen Z who are looking for political alternatives to male octogenarians. My daughter Phoebe is squarely among that group. She's 18 and is acutely aware of the anxiety, nihilism, and disillusionment that plagues her generation. As she and many of her friends look around at the various global crises from climate to mental health and see very little political leadership and a whole lot of bickering and pandering and misaligned incentives. Marianne is speaking directly and powerfully to this generation. So in that light, for the last section of the conversation today, I pass the mic to Phoebe. She and Marianne specifically discuss policies like the Biden approval of the Willow Project, student debt, and the impending takeover of AI. But before we dive in, I want to let you know about Marianne's new commune meditation course titled Speaking with the Divine. And you can sign up for a free five-day pass for that program at onecommune.com slash divine. Additionally, if you're interested in courses on civic engagement and how to run for office, we actually made a course under that title, as well as programs on functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, and meditation, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire treasure trove of courses, including more than 130 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite pod catcher. Makes a big difference. So if you're tired of the word salad emanating from the leading candidates, well, I think it'll be refreshing to hear someone speak with such clarity and eloquence. So without further delay, I present to you, Marianne Williamson. to see you, Marianne. It's always good to see you, Jeff. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to rapid fire a few different questions here. Um, given that you are a Democrat. Yes. Running for president. Yes. On the Democratic ticket. Yes. And there is a Democratic incumbent. Yes. That implies to me that you must think that you could do a better job in some respects than yes. President Biden. Yes. Now, we can acknowledge some legislative wins. Yeah. Um, CHIPS Act, Infrastructure, the Inflation Act, which was kind of a climate change act uh, or bill. Um, where has he done all right? And where do you think you can do better? He's taking an incremental approach to ameliorating the economic stress of many millions of people. But I agree with Eleanor uh, Roosevelt when she said to her husband, the amelioration of stress is not enough. We need fundamental economic reform. He represents the corporatist democratic elite who basically say, you know, we know it's kind of tough for you living within this economically unjust system. So we'll do what we can to help you on the periphery. My belief is that the Democratic Party should be doing everything possible to end the injustice. And in that sense, I'm a Roosevelt Democrat. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk about his being kind of Rooseveltian. I don't think he's Rooseveltian at all. Roosevelt went in there and he said the uh, powers of government should be used in service to the people. And uh, Biden continues really the 
we can have it both ways trajectory that began really with Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. We're going to play with the big boys, uh, but we're going to try to help people too. And there's at a certain point where the only way you can really help people, given how far the, the angle of just, justice has tilted away from true justice for the, African, for the average American, the only way to do that is if you're willing to challenge those corporate forces that make the return of their pain always inevitable. And he is not willing to do that. You mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago that, you know, there were healthy green investments in the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, you're right, but it's a kind of purse thief type of uh, activity here. Oh, look, we've, uh, we've put all these healthy green investments in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. You also approved the Willow Project, right. which completely nullify any of the benefits in those uh, green investments. And also you gave more oil drilling permits than even Trump did. So he'll say things like he's the climate president and he realizes climate is um, an existential threat. If you really believe that, you don't ramp up fossil fuel extraction, you ramp down fossil fuel extraction. And that's pretty true across the board. Yeah. Strangely, it feels like the Republicans and conservatives now have a monopoly on populism. Yeah. How did that happen? And how can you win back that message? Well, there are two different questions here. The way it happened is very odd, isn't it? The Republicans, in fact, have the elitist, not the populist policies, but they have a strangely more egalitarian way of dealing with their own constituency. Mm -hmm. The Democrats are the opposite. They do, at least more than the Republicans, usually have the more egalitarian policies, but a more paternalistic, arrogant, and elitist way of dealing with their own constituency. People don't like to feel looked down on. And if you make them feel looked down on, then even if you are serving their economic interests, they they feel patronized mm. and they won't necessarily vote for you. It's an attitude thing. They think it's more of a message thing. I think it's an attitude thing. And quite frankly, it's a policy thing. If you really are there for the average American, stop piddling around the edges. Stand for universal health care already. If you really care about the average American, stand for tuition-free college and tech schools at public colleges and universities already. If you really stand for the average American, provide for health care. Excuse me, provide for uh, child care. Give paid family leave, guaranteed housing, guaranteed sick pay, guaranteed living wage. It's always wait till next time. It's always just help us get more people, elect more Democrats, and we will get there. People are tired of hearing of it. And I think definitely younger people are tired of hearing it because younger people don't have an institutional memory of a time when there was any basis for trusting that they even meant these things. Yeah. I believe the defense budget this year is about $850 billion. $858 billion. Um, which is more or less of like a rubber stamp of prior budgets. Yes. What is an appropriate defense budget? Well, first of all, we, ha we have to get to the core of this. Uh, first of all, we, we need to look at the symptom and we need to look at the cause. So uh, 60 Minutes is doing a better job at oversight than the U.S. Congress is. The unbelievable price gouging, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, they're just running away. Uh, this is just their piggy bank. I mean, there's no regulation. They're being left to just regulate themselves. They're price gouging. And I think we should be disturbed by the fact that our defense uh, secretary is a former board member at Raytheon. So even if you say, okay, it's okay that he is, then theoretically, he would be even more capable of recognizing the problem that occurred there. I think the question that I'm, I'm bringing up for people is that we have to recognize that this whole idea that national security is increased, the bigger your defense budget, is such a crock. No one believes, no thinking person believes that the Iraq war increased our national security. No one believes that the last 20 years in Afghanistan increased our national security. When we're thinking about national security, we should be thinking about things like health care, ability to get an education, a living wage, and so forth. In answer to your question, there are rather conservative voices who are saying we could take off 10%. I believe we could take off 20%. But we have to first, the American people need to realize the ripoff that is involved here, the systemic theft, the systemic ripoff. We don't have uh, uh, universal health care because of insurance companies. People are rationing their insulin because of the pharmaceutical companies. We don't have a healthy energy grid. Uh, we're not mitigating climate change, we would, because of the greed of, of big oil, and we have this absurd bloat 
um, and it's worse than bloat, uh, real malfeasance on the part of military industrial complex because of money for defense contractors. And I think are recognizing that it's an entire matrix of corporate greed and that corporate greed has turned into corporate tyranny. And it is actually at this point, nothing less than that. Maybe not for you and me, Jeff, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, with 20% of the most adva economically advantaged Americans, uh, this is okay. You're, you're doing fine. 20% is not a, a high number. Uh, that 20% of us are living on an island surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. Yeah. When people hear universal health care, universal child care, and some of the other social programs that, um, that you support and promote, um, some people are like, oh, that really sounds like a socialist agenda. <laughs> um, I wonder how you would respond to, to someone like that. I respond to that the same way that Roosevelt responded to him. I mean, they, they came at him vehemently, those whom he called the economic royalists. And the economic royalists and their minions in the, in the mainstream media would say that today, do say that today. They called him a socialist just as they would call me a socialist. And the similarity between us is I would do what Roosevelt did. I would say I welcome their hatred. You know, that's why, you know, let us go in, provide those it's things, tough. and then uh, watch, watch them try to take them away. The same thing happened with Obamacare, you know, and that's not going nearly as far. You know, they criticize and criticize and criticize, and a lot of people are like, well, actually, it's helped things. Yeah, a lot well, of what are some of the social welfare programs that already exist today that people might... Who Such as Social Security. Yeah. You want to take away... And the Social Security came from the Socialist Party. And of course, there are, well, socialist welfare policies in the form of subsidies for a whole variety of industries. It's called social welfare for the rich. This, you know, what I think was Martin Luther King called it, you know, welfare for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor. I think Martin <laughs> Luther King said that. Yeah, what do, you, what do you call all these giving multi-billion dollar subsidies to corporations that are already making Billions of dollars. What do you call that if not a social welfare program for the rich? For that matter, you could say that the U.S. military is little more than a social welfare program for North of Grumman and, and Boeing and Raytheon. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, or you could look at the subsidies both on the production side and the consumption side for big energy, for big oil, for Absolutely. example. Absolutely. And not only that, but big energy and big food, they externalize all their true costs. Mm -hmm. Who pays for the cleanups? Or the healthcare costs. Us. That's right. So they're not. I'd be fine with the free market approach. Yeah, the to discipline energy, of the free market, as Mr. Whatever. Kennedy calls it. That's right. If it actually um, considered uh, those externalities internally, what would the bottom line look like for big food if they had to pay for the cleanup from CAFOs or from? Uh, the methane gas and carbon emissions going into the air or from the diabetes cost or what, like, as you say, this, you know, ridiculous, well, now they've tried to cap insulin at $35, right? But I mean, are people, like you say, they're rationing their insulin. I saw you spoke to someone the other day about that. Yeah. And Walmart is talking to its employees about how to sign up for food stamps. So we are compensating. We, the taxpayers, are compensating for the fact that Walmart will not pay its people a living wage. People are waking up, though. People are waking yeah. up on the right as well as the left. And that's why I think this is a real moment of opportunity. There's a window here. We have to move through it. We have to move through it quickly and urgently because it'll shut uh, as soon as they figure out <laughs> that people are starting to see. So we're about a year out now from the Supreme Court decision on Dobbs that rendered uh, abortion as, as not protected by the Constitution. And of course, many states had trigger laws that immediately uh, rescinded rights for women. And I think Iowa now is the latest state that just passed the, the six-week ban. Is this a lightning rod? I mean, it seemed like it was a lightning rod for Democratic candidates in the midterms, but be, but beyond the political, where are we with women's rights in this country? And is this a, a place, or is this a rallying cry? There's a bit of a war on women going on, I think. 
I love how Margaret Atwood, who wrote Handmaid's Tale, when the Dobbs decision came out, she said, I wrote it as a warning, not as an instruction manual. <laughs> you know, abortion oh, no. traditionally, traditionally the uh, two sides of the political spectrum on the right, there's always been more focus on issues of personal morality. On the left, there's always been more focus on issues of public morality. That's why you would have the right mm. more focused on something like abortion. I think the left, uh, you know, should be more focused on moral issues such as the invasion of a country uh, that hadn't done anything to you or uh, poverty itself. Our economic policy should be considered a moral issue. Um for me, the issue of abortion is that it is a moral issue, but it is an issue of private morality, and the government should not have anything to say about it. And I trust the moral perspective of the American woman. The vast uh, uh, majority of women who have abortions do not do so casually. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think something that both left and right uh, people of, of goodwill and certainly faith at all agree on is that it should be a decision only made um, from a deep place of reflection and prayerfulness. And, and I think for most women it is. Yeah. So the country went through significant tumult and pain over the course of three years with COVID. And I would say that a majority of Americans were very unhappy with the performance of public health agencies over that period. Um, you know, this is a very nuanced and complex issue, but I wonder in your mind, given that this might be, COVID might have been a very awful dress rehearsal for a pandemic with even greater fatality rates. Um, where did we get it right and, and where would we get, and where did we get it wrong and uh, what are the lessons that we've learned from, uh, from COVID-19? I think the majority of people who work for those agencies were people, hardworking people of goodwill who really wanted to serve the public. But I believe that there was a very arrogant, elitist decision made at the highest levels that we were not safe being too honest with the American people. Right. That we can't trust the people to make their own decisions. And I think that if they had, if they had simply been more honest, which is, we think this is the best way to go, but there are risks associated with it beyond, you know, uh, and also not only that, but I think a lot of us felt and still feel that there was a suppression of conversation about treatment. I mean, you, you weren't even allowed to mention vitamin C, uh, there was so little conversation. In fact, it seemed like none was even permitted about prevention, about building up your body so that your immune system would handle it better. It was such a focus on vaccine, 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 vaccine. And again, like I said, no, no honest conversation about what all that meant. Yeah, yeah. And I think that if there had been, there wouldn't be this, this deep cynicism. And the cynicism that we have now regarding so many of our agencies is very dangerous for our society. Yeah. And of course, this is the time in history where we need our institutions to actually Absolutely. be strong. Now, this means holding them to account, but also not burning them down. And I think now we're kind of uh, uh, walking this tightrope where there's a significant vo popular voices um, in the zeitgeist and in the Twitter sphere or now on threads or whatever, although threads seems to be a little more sane that are hell-bent on just burning down the institutions instead of making them better. And in, I mean, I haven't seen a better recipe for success than liberal democracy yet. Maybe there is one, but liberal democracy relies on institutions actually being strong and being trusted. And like you say, I mean, they, they hold a tremendous amount of responsibility for the erosion of trust in their own institutions. But I think the public dialogue needs to be focused on how we make them better. How we transform them. Yes. Not just blow them up, like right. you were saying. And there are uh, not only forces out there uh, that are saying, let's blow them up. There are candidates out there that are saying, let's blow them up. And that's, that just leads to chaos. That doesn't lead to some nice death and rebirth. Uh, 
the positive side of death and rebirth has to do with transformation, has to do with recognizing that you need to make a just transition from one phase to another, and everybody's well-being needs to be taken into account. You have to be very careful. You have to, um, the context of the dialogue that takes place is very important, and the context has to be a willingness to be honest, to be truthful, for America to look in the mirror. You know, I feel that the Republicans, to serve their own purposes, will try to make people think that things are even worse than they are. But too many corporatist Democrats, for their own purposes, want to make people think that they're better than they are. And I, as president, want to help Americans look in the mirror to face the fact that we have some serious problems, but we are going to deal with them because we are mature Americans, and it's our turn to do that. Yeah. The political invective that exists now in some ways, I believe, is a representation of, of personal physical inflammation. I'll f phrase it this way, that the inflammation that you see in the body politic is represented of inflammation that you see in the actual human body. We are not well as a society. You know, 60% of Americans have a chronic disease, 40% have two. Um, 90% almost are metabolically dysfunctional. We've got 50% of the United of Americans have diabetes or prediabetes. 90% of those people don't even know that they have it. Um, of course, you're talking to people on the ground every day that can barely afford their insulin. How do we approach? We're both come from a place of the from the wellness space, or we have a lot of experience there. How do we amplify this message that we need to become healthier as a society? Well, first of all, let's talk about the insulin thing for a moment, if we might. My mother yeah. died of diabetes. Her mother died, of, died of, of diabetes. My uncle died of diabetes. So I'm well aware of the situation. Yeah. Um, but I've been very moved and surprised and, of course, in a way heartbroken by how much resonance that message is uh, for people. When I talked about the fact that Americans uh, are rationing their insulin, when I talked about the fact that this doesn't happen in a society that has universal health care, which is every other advanced democracy, there was an 18-year-old girl who posted on my Instagram the other day, and she said, my mother rations her insulin. Mm -hmm. She said, my fear around this is immense. An 18-year-old girl shouldn't have to worry about this. Just broke my heart. Then I was giving a talk in in uh, New York. I came off the stage and a man came up to me and he told me how much it had meant to him that I mentioned insulin. He was a former detective with the New York uh, NYPD. And during that, his insurance uh, covered uh, insulin to the point where he only had to pay $12 a month. Then when he retired from there, he became a security guard at a hotel in New York. He went to the pharmacy one day and was told it will now be $1,200 a month. Now, his new union was able to get him new coverage and handle it, but he told me about the panic that he felt, that there are people in this country who are deciding between the rent and their insulin. One in four Americans live, uh, on, uh, live with medical debt. 85 million people cannot afford to pay for the prescriptions that their doctors give them. Now, having said all that, I agree with you. Uh, sickness is the absence of health. Health is not the absence of sickness. And this is why I said on one of the debate stages last year, last time, uh, we don't have a health care system. We have a sickness care system. That's right. And I, my, uh, I have on my uh, website something we call the whole health plan because our policies should do more. We should be having this, this uh, question of coverage. But as you said, we also have to ask, and I also said that on the debate stage, why do we have such a higher level of chronic illness That's compared right. to... Um, to other, to other countries. And it's because of the quality of our food, you know, and because of the food deserts and because of uh, big chemical companies and because of big agriculture and all of those things, which by now people are waking up to. You can look at the makeup of a ketchup, a bottle of ketchup in the United States versus a bottle of ketchup in Canada. That's right. There are companies, there is a company, a French company called Saint-Gobain, which is just spews PFAS into the water in Merrimack, New Hampshire. And at this point, they're finding PFAS, these forever chemicals everywhere, right? But this, this hub is Merrimack, New Hampshire. All right. St. Gobain would not be allowed 
to do in France what that's they right. can do in Merrimack, New Hampshire. And that's true with many foreign companies who would not be allowed to treat the food, to treat the land, to treat the air in their native countries in a way that is so deleterious to people and say, that's okay, we'll go to America, we'll buy, you know, we'll do it in America. Right. What does that say about us? <laughs> yeah. And this is the problem here. When we, many libertarians, of course, they want like government out of your life. They don't want regulations. But here's, here's what's happening. Government's already in your life. Because through the farm bill, for example, they're subsidizing big agriculture through cash crops. 90% mm -hmm. of those cash crops never actually get eaten by people. They're like GMO mm -hmm. corn mm -hmm. that get essentially synthesized mm -hmm. into products like high fructose corn syrup that then big food uses to create food stuff, you barely call it food, under the true cost of production. It's not free market at all. The government's involved. What they're doing, the reason why your Big Mac is so cheap is because you're paying for it on the other side mm -hmm. with your health and your taxes to pay for your healthcare dollars. So follow that line through. Big food is able to produce their food products for under the true cost of production and turn around and sell it back to the people and externalize all of the true costs associated with that. So, I mean, this is, this is the matrix that we have to untangle. Um, monopoly economy is not a free market economy. It, yeah. That's the, that's the, the Republican canard, isn't it? That's that right. This is all about being free. Also, uh, Adam Smith himself, the original articulator of free market capitalism, said it cannot exist outside an ethical context. Yes. I mean, we can talk graphs and data and numbers all day, but ultimately, if what you're doing is just unethical, unethical, and I, and I believe that that is the most powerful argument we have at our at our command. You can, you can talk circles around it all you want to, but if at the end of the day, there is an American mother who thinks, as my mother thought, my mother assumed that she was putting healthy food on the table for her family. And more than is true today, she actually was. Yeah. So there are parents all over this country who are you know, trying to feed their children well and put healthy food on the table and would be in many cases horrified uh, to find out the carcinogens and so forth that are uh, in that food. And I also know in so many times, those who are part of these conversations know about things years before it makes it into the mainstream press. An example of that is aspartame, right? right. Everybody I know has been talking about aspartame. Every time we see somebody pick up a, one of those fake sugar, you know, a sugar substitute, go, oh, you got to be careful, that's aspartame. But th that's been a conversation among everyone I know for decades. And now it's hitting the mainstream media. Well, right. it's hitting the mainstream media now. What about all those people who have been eating uh, aspartame uh, for so many decades? That What that says to me is that we did know about aspartame, but it literally took decades for it, get to, for it to get to the point where that would be become part of a, 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 an official conversation where change could possibly be made. That is how sclerotic our system is. We have more mass shootings in this country by a long shot than any Western industrialized country. Um, what would a sane gun policy look like in a Williamson administration? Well, we will be a violent society until we decide to become a nonviolent society. And when it comes to guns, I think we're living in an interesting moment of possible sea change. People are ready to get beyond, is it culture or is it guns? I think people on both left and right are beginning to recognize it is both. You know, you have, just as with, listen, just as with uh, universal health care, just as with free tuition-free college, people on the left and the right, the majority want it. And when it comes to common sense gun safety laws, not only people on the left and the right, gun owners, gun owners want more uh, common sense gun safety laws. Even some uh, Republican governors in red states are now saying, well, maybe a, a federal red flag law isn't such a terrible idea, whether it has to do with that or high capacity magazines or bump stocks or um, the, the boyfriend provision or high risk individuals being checked out or the time it takes, the waiting period. Um, I don't think we're at a point where we're ready to tip on uh, assault weapon ban. 
But on a lot of the steps going up to that, the conversation is getting deeper. People are seeing this is beyond out of control. But I think also we do need to have more of a conversation about the violence in our hearts, the violence on our media. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing if you're Martin Scorsese and the, the violence is part of art. I, yeah. I can appreciate that. But so much of the gratuitous violence and particularly for me, very concerning, the sexualization of violence that's on primetime TV, uh, that's in our movies that our young people particularly are seeing is very concerning. I mean, I, I think you can also point to social isolation as one of the contributing causes. I mean, never have has there been a time where people are more lonely yes. in this country. And we have to take a hard look at what is the role of social media, um, this kind of non-consensual psychological experiment here. Um, and w what are the other forms of, um, of community that we can offer our, our young people. Let's go back to the the social media issue. Obviously, we all know the high side of the internet, and there is a high side of the internet, and even if there wasn't, it's not going away. But one of the things that I've seen, I remember several years ago, I was in Houston, I was in a restaurant, and at the table next to me, it was a round table, mainly filled with adults, and then there was a, a toddler in a high chair. And the toddler, I mean, a little baby had a screen, and all the adults were talking and having a nice time. And the little baby was just looking at the screen. And I thought to myself, my God, this is the time when that baby should be picking up clues. Her, her little brain should be working on this. this is how people talk to each other. And instead, at this early age, life is only on a screen. People are peripheral. Right. And now you have video games as a perfect example of that. Before your prefrontal cortex is even fully developed. And you are not totally getting, this is human beings. This is flesh and blood. This is people who feel. This is people who hurt. You don't see that on a screen. These are people who hurt. Um, it's terrible what's happening. But once again, you can't use government as a bludgeon. You can't use government as a meat cleaver. Do I think there needs to be far more regulation? Absolutely. At the same time, we all have to look into our own hearts. When you see, and I'm dealing with this particularly now because I'm running, the meanness on, on Twitter. It's astonishing, actually, the hatred that people spew, yeah. the, the freedom people feel to say things that they don't even know what they're talking about, that they hearsay. Yeah. And of course, or the, the lack- things they'd never say if they were behind a screen. Pardon? The things they'd never say if they were uh -huh. behind a screen, mm -hmm. they'd never say it to your But face. even even journalists, even journalists, the, the low level of ethics and, you know, we, you know, no evidence of something, uh, repeating an anonymous tweet, whatever it is, uh, because it's all for profit. It's all for clicks. So the, the Democratic, the DNC, at, to this point, has been resistant to hold debates with you and the president, potentially Bobby Kennedy or, or any other um, Democratic uh, candidate. What are we going to do here? Because there's so many people that are dissatisfied with the system and the choices that we have, yet there doesn't seem to be any other avenues. And of course, because of Citizens United and the money coming in to the major political parties, there doesn't seem to be the ability to significantly fund a third party. So how, how do we get ourselves out of this? Mess? Well, the DNC is not just resistant, they are refusing uh, to hold debates. Now, two-thirds of the American people now say that they do not want the president to run again. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. If Kennedy and I continue to rise in the polls, there will be increased pressure for other Democratic candidates to jump in. If other Democratic, the more traditional candidates, do jump in, most of whom would be simply the new shiny version of the same neoliberal, uh, you know, cookie-cutter policy uh, representation, there will be, I don't know if Biden would then drop out, if Biden would stay in, but in either case, I don't see how they could deny us uh, the chance to debate. I think those of us who are so interested in politics can forget sometimes we're still quite early in the process. That's right. Yeah. What do you see on the Republican side? I mean, right now, obviously, 
uh, former President Trump seems to be have a sort of running away with it. The race, um, DeSantis at this moment seems to be uh, fading. Um, Chris Christie might have a little bit of momentum in a very kind of in a slice of the party just because he's been so outspoken. But otherwise, I mean, Mike Pence doesn't seem to have any <laughs> footing whatsoever. Um, so are we looking at President Trump? Unbelievable. Three? It would be if even if he is convicted, even if he is sent to prison, <laughs> it right. would be legal for him to run. It would not be right. legal for him to vote for himself but it would be legal for him to run. And clearly there are millions of people who would vote for him, even if he were in prison, they would see him as a um, political prisoner. But I gotta tell you something, Jeff, and I've said this uh, quite a few times, my concern for the Democrats in 2024 is not Donald Trump. My concern is how many people would just stay home, particularly young people who, from what I gather, would be very, have a hard time voting for someone who would approve the Willow Project. Yeah. So that that's the uh, that I think should be the biggest concern. The biggest concern of the of the Democrats should not be Donald Trump. Um, Roosevelt said that we wouldn't have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its promises. That's what we should be offering as an agenda, and that's what I am offering: an agenda where democracy delivers on its promises, which would be universal health care, uh, tuition-free college, and tech school child care, paid family leave, guaranteed sick pay, guaranteed living wage, guaranteed housing at this point. You have, I mean, the commodification of housing, Wall Street going in, buying up whole neighborhoods, uh, so many people who have no place to live. You know, a gentleman was saying on my volunteer call the other night about how during COVID, um, about People who had to live out of their cars, could no longer afford their rent, were living out of their cars and still going to work every day, were were going into the McDonald's to use the Wi-Fi. They were afraid of taking their kids to school because they were afraid that the officials would find out they were living in their cars. So they took their kids out of school to do homeschool, would do homeschooling, but in order to do that, they'd have to go into the McDonald's to get the Wi-Fi. This is reality for millions and millions of Americans. And every time somebody says to me, Marianne, what are you doing? Don't you understand the fascists are at the door? First of all, I say, yeah, I do understand. That's why I'm doing this. But I also say, let me guess. You have health care, don't you? Mm. Let me guess. You can afford to send your kids to college, right? Let me guess, you probably make a living wage, don't you? You probably have a place to live, don't you? It's a, There's a denial on the part of the Democratic elite right now, which reminds me terrifyingly of 2016. It's like we're watching a car crash all over again in slow motion. Because when Hillary Clinton said, let's just continue the success of the last eight years, let's not forget how many millions of people said, what success, I'm drowning here. It's been the promise of the American dream to always leave the next generation to create a culture and a situation that left them better off than the prior generation. Not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, and, and you I all, know, I'm yeah, sorry. No, I'm going to say, because and now you're a grandmother. Yeah. So you, this is hitting home in a very visceral way for you. Of course, I'm the father of, of three daughters and, uh, and, you know, when you have progeny and children, you know, you're pushed out of the nucleus of the cell and you're sort of an electron looking in and it, and you, it gives you a different viewpoint towards these things of like, we need, I mean, I've heard you say this before, like we are on the brink of the sixth grade extinction, but we're the ones, but it's a man-made one. You know, Absolutely. And several years ago, you know, even 10 years ago, you would hear people say, well, these young people will grow up and fix it. No, there's no time for a new (laughs) generation to grow up. I spoke at Cambridge University um, about a month ago. And some of the students who were hosting me there, we had a meal before my talk. And I was struck by how much more hope they seemed to feel. Like when I talked in in my talk about the fact that people are rationing their insulin in the United States, they just all, people were disbelieving. I mean, even at the most prestigious universities here, 
you feel um, a low-grade despair among too many young people. Something's wrong. This is not how youth are supposed to feel. And also, another thing that I've noticed is even the happiest people I know feel sad about America today. Something's gone awry. The good news is the fact that so many people are registering that is, I think, creating, and I feel it, a greater listening, a greater, greater sense of tell me what you got, what ideas do you have? And that's the good news about the bad news. Yeah. Well, on that note, I want to be able to pass the mic to the next generation um, because I think you, you made an, an interesting observation just demographically is that uh, for the very first time, this new generation of Gen Z from a proportion of the voting population is very, very significant. And we've always said, oh, well, they just don't vote. They're too young. They're not serious, right? Well, they're starting to prove us wrong. And so. before people would say, well, it doesn't matter because they don't vote. But this Gen Z, you know, these are not 20th century people. You know, millennials are a little bit of Boomer 2.0 in certain <laughs> ways. Gen Z breaks the core. They're not even 20th century people. And many that I meet don't understand, and I agree with them, why should they have to live their lives at the effect of, a, of bad economic ideas left over from the 20th century? Mm -hmm. Gen Z is the first generation for whom there are no coattails mm. of a Democratic Party or any government that you knew was on your side. Yeah, they get it wrong here, they get it wrong there, but basically I know they're out there working for us. Right. They've never seen it, they've never felt it, and they're right to be very upset about that. And they are willing, so far, to say so at the ballot box. And the Democrats should be very, very concerned, uh, which is why they <laughs> should nominate me. Yeah, well, you are <laughs> resonating with that crowd. I mean, I can see it on TikTok specifically, because um, I think that's where a lot of them well, mm -hmm. and uh, although my daughter might be scoffing and laughing, I mean, it's probably something, some, something that I've gotten wrong there. Dad, mm. it's so cute the way you say TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I troll, I troll a little bit, um, <laughs> but um, but they're looking. Like I said before we started, that generation, and I'll let Phoebe speak for herself, but they can see through artifice. They can see through BS. And, uh, and that's why your voice is so resonant because you're not reading off some safe little script, you know? You well, so I'm naming it. the elephant on the table. Yeah. You know, earlier today, um, and this is good because I know that you will leave out anything we don't think should be out there, but I'll tell this story. And I'll say it without saying who it is, okay? <clears throat> this morning I saw an interview with a progressive U.S. congressperson. And... This man has endorsed President Biden. And people are asking him, everything you say you stand for is Marianne Williamson's policy positions, not President Biden's. So why are you endorsing President Biden? And he said, well, I just, you know, I really like Marianne and I think her voice is important, but I think experience matters. Uh, qualifications matter. And the, the journalist said, his experience at voting for the Iraq war, his experience at voting for NAFTA, his experience at approving the Willow Project. And this man was giving this obfuscation of yes, but somehow, and you see what happens to people when they get in that system. They just get boxed in. He says, no, we just have to keep fighting. Yes, you have to keep fighting, but he won't fight. He won't, and I, I'm not saying he won't fight in terms of his position in Congress, but to me, endorsing someone who represents what you don't want to have happen or what is a kind of slow walk to such a point that it's basically blocking what could happen. Um, I think that that system, those within that system claim that they're the only qualified people to change it. But actually what they're qualified to do is to perpetuate it. And what we need is someone who is qualified to disrupt it. And I think the qualification to disrupt it is a willingness to name what's really happening. Why are That's we pretending right. this isn't happening? How long are we going to, to pretend that the emperor has any clothes?
Okay, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marianne. Now I pass the microphone, literally, to the next generation, my daughter, Phoebe. So here's Phoebe Grant Krasnow and Marianne Williamson. Well, it's so nice to officially meet you in person now. Well, it's wonderful to meet you too, Phoebe. It's really quite exciting. Thank you. Yeah, your name comes up a lot with me and my friends, so this definitely feels like a moment I've been waiting for. Well, I'm grateful to hear that. Definitely. Um, Just listening to some of the things you and my dad were talking about, I think a lot of what you say is right, but something that really hit home was when you were talking about um, just this lack of faith and trust that people in my generation, Gen Z, have um, in relationship to politics right now. And I really applaud you because I feel like for the first time in a while, we're hearing a voice that is really authentically like in touch with our greatest concerns. And you do it in a way that doesn't feel manipulative. It doesn't feel inauthentic. Um, and yeah, I just really wanted to congratulate you on being able to be that voice of hope. Well, thank you. I'm just speaking my own truth. And I think a lot of the things that I say, older people do think and feel more than you might know. Mm-hmm. But we have all these layers of, oh, I can't say that. Oh, they will laugh at me if I say that mm-hmm. going on that you don't have because everybody you know at your age is just coming out and saying it. Why would we not? Why would we not? And, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also, something that you said before was that I feel like older people are looking for systemic patterns, right. That can prove something wrong or they can't do a certain thing because it's, it's unheard of or it's taboo, but we're looking for someone who's new, who has this new voice, who isn't just like holding on to the past in any sense. Um, and I think this lack of faith is, you know, reinforced by this additional epidemic of anxiety. You know, all of my friends have anxiety, literally every single one of them. All we talk about are ways we can cope with our anxiety, whether that be because of social media or feeling unsafe in public places or an AI takeover or like the impending climate crisis. We're all riddled with anxiety and we're looking for these short-term solutions, but really this is a cultural issue. And the reason why we're all so afraid all the time is because of these cultural factors. So I was just wondering how, if you were in office, you would address those cultural factors and make us more of a a part of the conversation. The first thing I want to say regards uh, your initial comments there, older people say about someone like myself, oh, it's outside the box. It's out of the box. People in your generation say the box is so toxic. Yeah. The only hope for survival get away from beyond the box. sustainability, beyond survival, is if we get out of that box. Mm-hmm. So I, I recognize that. In terms of the anxiety, I think we need to remember that anxiety and depression at such a time as this can be a functional and not a dysfunctional response to the times in which we live. You know, if your if your leg breaks, your brain emanates physical pain. The physical pain is an important signal to you to reset the bone. And I think that's often true with psychic pain, psychological pain, emotional pain. It's an important signal. Something has to change. And in this case, we need to reset the world. When you look at the things that people are anxious about, you have a reason to be anxious about it. We should be anxious about uh, AI. And the fact that so many people aren't Mm-hmm. is the dysfunction. Truly. You should be anxious and, and depressed about what we're doing to the planet. The dysfunction is how many people are thinking, oh, it's okay. Right. So the issue is to take that anxiety. All the anxiety is is energy. Mm-hmm. All of it, Everything is energy. The issue is how do we transform it? And we have to transform it into motivation and inspiration to change things. Mm-hmm. That's where the biggest problem lies, that you live in a generation where unlike me, unlike your father, I at least have a memory of a time when it was reasonable to think that if we protest enough, if we protest enough, the government just might, we might be able to get a president out of office, which we did with Lyndon Johnson. We just might be able to end the war as we did with Vietnam War. You're living in a generation where they are criminalizing protest. 
Mm-hmm. You're living in a generation where they're they're trying to suppress the vote. So I understand how your generation would would feel completely locked in, like shackled by what do we do? Mm-hmm. So that's to me the distinction between anxiety about things that yeah we should be anxious about versus anxiety about the fact that we feel hopeless and we cannot change things. Mm-hmm. And I think Phoebe, that's really why I'm running. I can't control whether or not people would want to vote for me. But what I can control is whether you at least have the option of someone who would use the levers of power to the best of my ability to make the changes that at least begin a season of fundamental repair. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that, I mean, anxiety is a natural, even in our most primal state, something that can be helpful and beneficial. But when there isn't a solution, even as a possibility, that anxiety just becomes a dormant thing that is bothering you. But I really do believe that you could be the catalyst to make that anxiety something useful. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Because it puts you in a double bond if you feel there's nothing I can do about it. And it's, 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 it's a, that's where the, the deeper, that goes beyond anxiety, that goes into fundamental despair. Mm-hmm. And that's what is really concerning me, not just among young people, but in, in, in America today, there's this, an emotional spiraling down, cynicism and, and negativity, and, and uh, it, it perverts the personality. Yeah. That was never so clear to me. I mean, I just spent my last year in Paris. I think I've mentioned that to you. And throughout, I mean, it was probably the craziest year to be in Paris just after Macron's decision with the retirement age, but so inspirational in some ways, seeing that ethos of protest, people just like pouring out into the streets. And it didn't look like anything was going to change, but people protested every day. People stopped working. People stood their ground because like in the past, there's been a response that has been a, a useful social tactic. And I just really wish we could see that energy and see that type of, um, I like, I guess, community and faith and hope here in America that I saw this past year. Well, we are, there is a regeneration of this whole notion of solidarity. You see it with what's happening with the unions right now, mm-hmm. whether it's Starbucks, whether it's uh, Amazon or what's going on here in Hollywood with the writer's strike and the actor's right. strike. Yeah. So you're beginning to see uh, some regeneration there. And that's obviously a very good thing. Um, I grew up in a generation where we did come together. We did protest and we did make changes. And, you know, I I said to my daughter not long ago who lives in London and I was visiting her and I called her one day and I said what you just said because I was across from Hyde Park and all this stuff was going on. And I said, you know, it just feels like there's a more thriving democracy here. Mm-hmm. She said, because there is mom. <laughs> yeah. that doesn't just, that's not to say France doesn't have its problems. It's not to say that England doesn't have its problems. But Definitely. there is more of a sense. You know, I don't know if you ever saw the movie um, Where to Invade Next. Mm-mm. Did you see that? It's a movie by Michael Moore. It was a brilliant film. And the title isn't very good because it sounds mili- like about yeah. military invasion. And it's not. What it's about is very relevant to what you just said, how America is very good at coming up with ideas Mm -hmm. where other countries become better at effectuating them. Like he would see all these brilliant things happening in schools and he would say to people, where'd you get the ideas? And they said, well, it was actually an American who first suggested this. So that's an interesting characterological um, aspect of uh, the American mind that uh, we're going to have to fix because the americans used to be the rambunctious ones Mm -hmm. we used to be the we can do this and uh and i think there's something in you in your generation that knows on some instinctive level it's not supposed to be that way in this country Mm -hmm. that we we're so locked in that there was nothing we can do yeah um and we've got to we've got to smash through that phoebe right got to smash through that no and when you hear when you hear people say well phoebe you just got to keep voting for the people who are slow walking Mm-hmm. all this, I understand why you, you would feel we don't have time. Yeah. Because we actually don't. You know, you're hearing statistics like if we don't deal with climate change within the next 15 years, there could be whole swaths of continents that are uninhabitable uh, because of the heat, implosion of food systems, implosion of economic systems, uh, hundreds of millions perhaps of climate refugees or people your age. I think one of the things that has impacted me most, and I, I would ask this question on the campaign trail in 2020, I ask it again now, Mm -hmm. and if anything, I even see more hands raised, but even then, it was shocking number of hands raised. This is all over America, okay? I would put this question to the audience. If the answer is yes, I'd like you to raise your hand, and I'd like you to please keep your hand up so that everybody in the room can look around and see. Number one, well, there's only one question. (laughs) Have you, are you a young person 
Or have you ever heard a young person who said, under normal circumstances, I would be thinking of having children. But given the state of the planet, I'm not feeling it's a responsible thing to do. Yeah, uh, an ethical thing to do. People raise their hands, and then I ask everyone to look around, and I would see the shock, mm -hmm. the surprise on people's faces, clearly thinking, oh, I thought it was just me, mm -hmm. or I thought it was just, you know, I happen to have heard it, and all over this country, and I, and I, it's just unbelievable. I remember last time, maybe a fifth of the room, maybe a quarter. Mm -hmm. This time, a full third of the room is not unusual. I'm not surprised. And, yeah. um... I just point out to people, not that they disagree, this is not normal. Mm -hmm. If this is not a blinking red light, if this is not a loud siren, I don't know what is. Yeah. Uh, your father and I were talking um, a little while ago about some phys uh, physical symptomology that you're seeing a lot. We are seeing a lot of signs, or a lot of young people, the lowered sex drive, uh, lowered sperm count. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of signs that the human race is starting to just Devolve. shut down. and. Yeah. We have to recognize this downward spiral and intend and commit to lifting the energy up, mm -hmm. which we can. You know, as Camus said, in the midst of the darkest winter, I realized there was within me an invincible summer. Yeah. And I see in your generation, despite everything that we just talked about, you have the same yearning to get it right, creativity yeah. and productivity that every other generation, as our generation, every other generation had. Yeah. But you're being blocked, you're being thwarted in some ways. Yeah. And I think the biggest victimization, if I may say so, is not only that you're being victimized, but then you're being convinced that you're a victim, mm -hmm. which even makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So we got to awaken from all of that. I mean, there's so much talk about like, oh, wow, we've put so much on your generation's shoulders. Like, I'm so sorry. Now you have to solve all of these crises. But it's like, no, we're ready to help. That's right. But there's so much conversation about like the systemic wounds that are hurting our country socially, emotionally, spiritually. And all of those wounds were created so far before we were even born that it doesn't feel like we're even given a space to help correct that or like this healing journey that our country so clearly needs that is talked about that you talk about in your campaign. It's like, where is our place? What can we do? What is the future that's going to be paved after this healing? It doesn't even, we can't even really envision it sometimes. But the yeah. fact that the wound has existed so long is not of itself the problem. The fact that you don't see an avenue for solving the problem is the problem. Yeah. Uh, slavery existed from the beginning, you know, even before, even before our country was founded. That began in 1619 with the first slave ships. The country was founded in 1776. So obviously in the middle of the 1800s, when the uh, abolitionist movement started revving up, they could say this has been going on for 200 years because it had been. But they, although surely it would have been desperate times, felt on some level there was something they could do, and ultimately they did do it. Women's suffragists, there had never been a time mm -hmm. when women could vote in this country. So it's not about how long the wound has existed. It's about, first of all, it's about our own internal characterological um, commitment, seriousness, mm -hmm. that we're going to find a way because we must, and also creating the conditions uh, where you can, whether mm -hmm. it has to do with elections, whether it has to do with the suppression of political voices, whether it has to do with the criminalization of protest or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But that's why we're here. That's why you and I are having this conversation. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we are definitely can be a very realistic generation, but we we're looking for the hope and we're looking for the hope in your message. And I just I hope you keep saying everything that you say and keep talking to us like um, like we're important, like we mean something. So the very idea that any of us uh, should feel unimportant is the primal wound. Mm -hmm. We're all important. We're important whether we're 18 or 80, but also I think we need to remember whether we're eight. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, this business of children is a big deal to me. Yeah. You know, children, uh, they're not old enough to vote, so they don't have any, uh, they're not a constituency, they're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. Yeah. And we need to remember they're full-on citizens as well. They yeah. also theoretically have the inalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And we have to advocate for them. Mm -hmm. One issue that definitely affected me a lot, and I can speak for the rest of my generation in regard to their support of, of President Biden, was 
his his decision with the Willow Project to um, to make that choice after he had said so many statements just seems hypocritical. And I was wondering where you stand on that and and what you would have done differently. The corporatist democratic playbook has become one in which they usually do say the right things. It's mm. what they do. Therein lies the problem. So the president has said that he's the climate president and that he understands that climate change is an existential crisis for the species. And then he turns around and he gives more oil drilling permits than even yeah. Trump did. So I understand your moral outrage. This is your life. This is uh, this factors into whether or not you you consider having children. Mm-hmm. This is this could be your survival. And I, I just believe that you have a right to ask why people who maybe have 20 years left on this planet are making such such damaging decisions for people who would only be hitting their stride mm-hmm. in 20 years. Um, so I understand your your moral outrage. But remember, moral outrage is born of love. And we have to keep it that moral outrage as opposed to just this cynical giving up. Right. I understand the temptation. I, I think no matter what age we are, mm-hmm. we all have a little, there's this pressure to just acquiesce. We can't change it. Stick this is just the, the way it is. Give yeah. in, uh, self-medicate, uh, just go numb, uh, live in perpetual anger. And at some point we have to pull each other up and say, don't go there. Mm-hmm. Don't go there. Don't go there. Cause that's the ultimate defeat. And I feel even with my campaign, we have a window here. There's a window of possibility. It's not a long one, but we just got to rush through. The times are urgent. And I would remind you, uh, you know, we, we spoke a little before about the abolitionists. They would have had some desperate days, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. The women's suffragists would have had desperate days. Um, anybody's tried to make fundamental change in, this, in our country's history. When I hear people say how traumatizing the whole thing is, surely walking across the bridge at Selma would have been traumatizing. They didn't know if they were going to bring out the dogs, the hoses, the bullets, uh, the women's suffragists. This is why I think reading history is so empowering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women's suffragists who were being beaten regularly by their husbands and watching their husbands beat their children when they would come home drunk, they had no recourse. And they yeah. thought, well, maybe, maybe if if we had the vote, mm-hmm. we could help change things. So they start marching for suffrage. They're treated horribly, finally even thrown into jail. That was their crime. They were marching for suffrage. They're thrown into prison. The conditions in the prison were so awful that they went on a hunger strike. The response of the prison officials was to send men into their cells and force these metal contraptions on their necks to force feed them. (sighs) You think they weren't traumatized? You think they weren't anxious? You know, I'll tell you something. I had an experience about four months ago. Um... I was in that period before, you know, still deciding whether or not to mm-hmm. run. And I had a friend and he was very deep in that inquiry with me. And I started complaining about something. They were mean or they were unfair or something. Or if I do this, blah, blah, blah. He sent me a text and it just hit me like a brick to the forehead. He said, toughen up, buttercup. And I think that we have to stop coddling. It's, it's, it's a balance we have to strike here. Mm-hmm. We have to understand where our pain comes from, honor the pain, but like I said, alchemize the pain, mm-hmm. turn the pain into the medicine, mm-hmm. but also toughen up. Toughen I'm up. sorry that uh, at your age you have to take on such a serious issue, but so did, so did my generation. Yeah. We had the Vietnam War. There was a draft uh, when I was your age. Um, the assassinations. So it's also realizing that uh, we're not the first generation mm-hmm. to have to repudiate systems of injustice. Mm-hmm. Other generations have handled it. You want to identify the problems of the past, but you want to identify with the problem solvers. And I know for myself, I get a lot of inspiration and encouragement uh, reading about and thinking about people who actually had it a lot harder than I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, stood up to the challenge and prevailed. Yeah. Well, what we need is this future forward thinking. And I Mm -hmm. think there's this obsession with like instant gratification. Mm -hmm. You want the solution here and now, whether even if it means going to Alaska, you know, and it's just like, I don't know how we could readjust that thinking. And it's like, no, we can implement something that maybe in five years will help this crisis, but it won't be right in front of you. It won't be exact. But I just don't know how that 
it's a mental shift um, of just being able to appreciate the long game that I think we're missing a little bit. But how would you, I think, help shift that mental that mental state of convincing people like we're in it for the long haul and might not be right in front of you right now but i can be the person who can pave this different future well it's it's long haul only in that it's a marathon and not a sprint mm -hmm. but it's also an urgent moment mm -hmm. so we can't think of the long game in terms of the incremental approaches like are being offered uh, by many who say, well, we just need to keep working on it. The undertow is so great. The Overton window is moving so far to the right all the time that every time, every time we make any progress, you still feel the undertow. So I, I don't think it's about, um, calibrating our nervous systems, knowing this is going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. It's actually a balance. Um, it, it's not about thinking it's going to take a long time. It is about realizing it's going to be a marathon. And, we, the, you know, the instant gratification gives you this kind of white sugar uh, type of attitude towards political activism. And that just gives you an adrenaline high and then you yeah. cr it crash. We have to look at it as a long haul, but not an incremental approach. It's that we have to respond to this moment and mm -hmm. to the urgency of this moment. Uh, I would be lying to you if I said it wasn't an urgent moment. Right. I would be lying to if I said that the window wasn't short. I would be lying to if I said the hour wasn't late. Wow. Yeah. But it's not midnight yet, and you're young. <laughs> you have the energy. Uh, theoretically, in terms of the relationship, uh, the relationship between the generations, you have the energy. We have the experience. You know, you know more what's happening now. We know more what's been happening, mm -hmm. and the circular dynamics. You put the two together. And we, we can, can make it happen. Things. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> well, okay. Thank you so much for Thank talking you with so me. Much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our conversations with Marianne. I urge you to check out her book, The Politics of Love and find out more about her candidacy at marianne2024.com. Of course, Marianne also has numerous fantastic and inspirational courses on the Commune platform. So if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show, and we do our best to keep the ads to a minimum, so if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune. It'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and doctors and thought leaders. And you can check it out, no strings attached, for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that give everything they got to make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Lobb, Megan Stone, Leda Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you.